real, real wisdom. It would be somewhat of a miracle if I could uh, summarize the state of Middle East uh, affairs in 30 minutes. Uh, that's beyond uh, anyone's human capacity. I will try to make some observations about this. I'm not here to sell you anything. My days of selling and advocacy, other than advocating for common sense and the national interest, are, are over. Um, I think some of these observations are worth keeping. We can argue about some of them. And uh, if you don't like them, you can discard the rest. Let me, let me just begin by saying that I had the honor and privilege of working for half a dozen secretaries of state over the years. I'm not a, I'm not a trained diplomat. I was a historian who wandered into Washington, worked for a half a dozen secretaries of state on the negotiations, George Schultz to, uh, to Colin Powell. Um, and I'm a deep believer in something called the national interest. I worked for Republicans and Democrats. I voted for Republicans and Democrats. And to me, the dividing line for a sustainable foreign policy and domestic policy is not between left and right, not between liberal and conservative, and not between Republican and Democrat. It's between dumb on one hand and smart on the other. And the only thing that matters for Americans is to determine which side of the line do you want the republic to be on. That's the only thing that matters. And that requires a degree of courage, that requires a degree of humility, that requires a degree of nonpartisanship and bipartisanship in order to arrive at that conclusion. All presidents are affected by domestic politics. And we've never had a great one-term president. Arguable, some people might argue, today is the anniversary of uh, the American invasion of Mexico. Some would argue that James Polk was a great president. But presidents need to seek affirmation in a second term to be great. So yes, domestic politics is important, but the key is to, is to try to find a way to turn the M in me upside down so that it becomes a W in we. That is, in essence, the driving factor, it seems to me, between trying to find the right kind of, of policy. Second, uh, I'm also a great believer in the axiom drawn from the real estate business that location, location, and location is the key to success. And if you want to understand American foreign policy toward the Middle East or any other part of the world, you have to fully come to terms with the issue of our geographic idiosyncrasy. We are the only great power in the history of the world, without exception. And I would challenge any of you to identify another great power that has this sort of geographic good fortune. We are sandwiched between two non-predatory powers to our north and south, and, and fish to our east and west, what one historian, I wish it had been me, described uh, as our liquid assets. These two oceans and these non-threatening neighbors speak volumes about the way we behave ab abroad, and not always for good. It explains our arrogance, because we have a margin for error unlike any other nation in the international system today. It explains our pragmatism. Having never been occupied or invaded, there are a few brief exceptions to that, of course, um, we see the world in very practical terms. We believe there are solutions for every problem in the world, and we are the ones who can deliver them. That's not a terribly accurate assessment, I would argue. It explains our idealism. 
the fact that somehow we have a certain naivete about how nations behave. Other nations, most nations, including big ones that we deal with, China, Russia, do not have the good fortune of having freed themselves from two forces, I would argue, most nations can never free themselves from. Force of history and the force of geography. So when John Kerry describes Vladimir Putin as behaving as if he was functioning in a 19th century world, I'm not sure I understand what Kerry means. Russia is driven by history and geography, as is China, as is Iran, as are the Palestinians, the Israelis, the Egyptians, all of them. And that geographic fortuna affords us a special responsibility to also understand before we act. And too often, I would argue to you, particularly when it comes to war making, and peacemaking in the Middle East, we do not think before we act. We don't. I would go on and on about the American invasion of Iraq, now one of the two longest wars in American history, fought by 0.5% of a country of 300, and 300 plus million people. And I would pose the question, what has the return been worth in response to the investment? and not only in American lives, and I'm not a pacifist, but I am a rationalist when it comes to the deployment and the use of American military power abroad. It must serve a set of sustainable and um, attainable ends. So the bottom line for me looking out at a region which is broken, angry, and dysfunctional is that this is a story not of resolution, and again, I would challenge any of all, and all of you to identify a single problem in this region, just one, that has a comprehensive or definitive solution that can be attained. It is not resolution. It is management. I'm not happy about that. We are the fixed people. We carry a special responsibility of leadership in the world, but we have to be smart about whether or not we can fix and how to move into negotiations with a view of having some possibility of succeeding. The most compelling ideology in life is not nationalism, not communism, not capitalism, not even democracy. The most compelling ideology in life is success because success generates power, it generates constituents, and failure generates the opposite. So we are stuck in a region that we cannot transform, I would argue, Iraq and Afghanistan on a daily basis, daily basis, demonstrate that fact. We cannot transform this region. The Middle East is littered with the remains of great powers who believed wrongly they could impose their will on smaller ones. So if we can't transform and we can't extricate we can't leave because we have allies, adversaries, interests, moral and ethical factors that impel the United States to be involved in this region. If you can't transform and you can't extricate, what then is the proper approach? I would argue, as painful as it is to accept, it is something I call transaction. You identify what really counts for US interests 
and you go about trying to think carefully, rationally, without regard to domestic politics to the extent that you can, and I was on CNN very early this morning talking about the opening of the U.S. Embassy tomorrow in Jerusalem as an example of the triumph of domestic politics and ego over the national interest. So if you're going to transact and you're going to be smart about things, then you have to identify what your core interests are and then try and not get distracted by them. One, just one simple example. We, we invaded Iraq with insufficient forces, a woeful misunderstanding of what the political and economic environment was. And um, we wondered why we, we aren't succeeding. Well, we occupied Japan from 1945 to 1952. Do you know how many Americans were killed in hostile acts by Japanese on the mainland during those years? None. Not a single American. And they were taking Japanese, finding Japanese servicemen on isolated Pacific Islands as late as the 1960s who hadn't surrendered, may not have been aware that the war was over. So, even in transaction, particularly in transaction, thinking before we act. And I would argue, if you, if you ask me what America's three core interests are in the Middle East, I would say they're, they're, they all relate to American security and prosperity. Number one is preventing another catastrophic attack on the homeland. And frankly, since 9-11, there's not been a single orchestrated, directed, successful attack by a foreign terrorist organization against the United States. So to a large degree, that has been successful under both Democratic administrations and Republican. That's one, because if you can't protect the, your homeland, you don't need a foreign policy. It's the organizing principle of all foreign policies. Second, oil, while we are less dependent on it, others need it. The world economy requires it, and I might add that oil is now over $70 a barrel. Um, there may be a, a, a link to further increases should U.S.-Iranian tensions increase in, in the wake of the president's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear agreement. So we, we, we may be self-sufficient, and as shale oil comes online and Western hemi Hemisphere producers continue to produce, we will become less dependent on Arab hydrocarbons, but not the rest of the world. So we have a stake in the stability of those regimes, even though many do not share our values, and at times, not even our interests. That's the second. And finally, the third core interest is preventing any single power from emerging as a regional hegemon with a nuclear weapon. Up until last week, I thought we were at least managing that problem reasonably well. And there, there are fundamental flaws in the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, the Iranian Nuclear Agreement, but it is still functional. And there's very little to replace it. So those are, the, those are our three core interests. And when I say core, I mean vital. And when I mean vital, I mean interests around which, toward which, an American president would be prepared to sacrifice put Americans in harm's way, spend billions of dollars, and put American credibility on the line. There are other interests, promoting human rights, solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, doing what we can to try to uh, create better environments, 
so that the four Arab states that are in the process of varying phases of meltdown, Libya, Yemen, Iraq, and Syria, could look toward a better future. But I don't put much hope or stock in our capacity to deliver on those things. I'm trying to think of a single incident, single enterprise, post-World War II, where the United States has fundamentally rebuilt and played the primary seminal role in rebuilding a country wracked by civil war. You have Kosovo, for sure, and Bosnia. And while I'm on the subject of human rights, let me just point out something else. This was the 25th anniversary of the US Memorial Holocaust Museum, which is an important acknowledgment for the United States, not just for the American Jewish community, but for all Americans and for all citizens of the world. And there is the slogan, never again. It's compelling, it's uplifting, it's inspiring, but by and large, if you look at the record of American intervention in the face of mass killings over the last 70 years, it is something that has been unrealized. The Nazi Holocaust, Cambodia, Rwanda, Darfur, Congo, Myanmar, Syria, and this is not a partisan comment. Barack Obama took a lot of heat for failure to intercede in Syria, and yet I would argue to you that Obama's policy is the norm, not the exception. And I don't have an answer to this, but I think as Americans, we need to take a long look in the mirror before we start aspiring to things and claiming that we do things that we really don't. And this is a serious issue, particularly for this administration, who seems to have abandoned much of the pretense. And again, I'll remind all of you, I worked for Republicans and Democrats and voted for them. I'm looking at the world the way it is. I have no political agenda here. It's just a reality. Moving on, you have the Israeli-Palestinian issue which is where I spent most of my um, professional life. And I will say to you, on the eve of a week that could be fraught with violence, today is Jerusalem Day in Israel. Tomorrow, the embassy will open. May 15th is Nakba Day, the day, the, the catastrophe in Arabic, the day that Palestinians have rendered the misfortune that befell them as a consequence of the state of Israel. And by the way, Al-Nakba Day was not celebrated formally uh, May 15th until 1998, when Yasser Arafat, a man with whom we dealt in the negotiations, spent hundreds of hours dealing with, decided, as Israel proclaimed the 50th anniversary of the creation of the state, to identify May 15, the day after Israeli Independence Day, according to the Gregorian calendar, as Al-Nakba Day. And then you have Ramadan. I cannot imagine a confluence of events designed to produce what I, hope, what I hope is not the case, which is massive violence and an explosion. But let me just simplify matters on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Right now, the chances of producing the least bad outcome to this conflict, that is to say a two-state solution, are slim to none. I've given up most of my illusions over the years on this issue, but I have not given up hope because I have a 38-year-old and a 36-year-old, and I don't have the right to say to them never 
I occupy this planet for a tiny period of time, a tiny discrete period of time. I can't predict the future, and I don't have the right to mortgage it uh, and mortgage the lives of Israelis and Palestinians. But I will say to you right now, here and now, and I've been saying it for, for the last, left government in 03 for the last 15 years consistently, you give me three things which are now not evident, and I'll give you a, a reasonable chance, not just to have a successful negotiation, but to actually produce something. Number one, leaders who are masters of their political houses, not prisoners of their ideologies and their constituencies. Israelis and Palestinians who own their own negotiation, who value it more than the international community does. And let me remind all of you that the three great breakthroughs in the Arab-Israeli conflict came without the foreknowledge of the United States. The Israeli-Egyptian peace treaty was produced by secret contacts that the State Department in 1977, when Moshe Dayan came to brief my predecessors and colleagues, were not aware of. I was on vacation, Lindsay remembers well, in Florida in August of 1993. Got a call from the State Department Operations Center, you better come back. Israelis and Palestinians have reached an agreement, they want to sign it on the White House lawn, and the Israeli-Jordanian peace treaty, which was a consequence of years, decades, of clandestine and discreet contacts between Israelis and Jordanians. You need leaders, you need ownership, and I'm reminded, I've used this line a million times, but it's profound philosophy, it's not mine, I wish it were. In the history of the world, it is said nobody ever washed a rental car. There's a reason you do not wash rental cars, because most people care only about what they own. And what is lacking in the Israeli-Palestinian complex is that sense of ownership. And finally, you need a serious third party. Whether, I think it has to be the United States for many reasons, but you need a serious third party who has the will and the skill and the capacity to apply both honey and vinegar to a negotiation. Because if you can't apply honey and vinegar, you are not going to get Israelis and Palestinians or Arabs and Israelis to the point where they can make the, the decisions with your help bridging the gaps between the parties. There are many other thoughts, topics that I have not covered. I think I may be nearing, Clark will be the, is the timekeeper on this, the, the end of my remarks, but I, I'd only close um, with a comment from the last president who had an, emo well, the only president, frankly, that had an emotional impact on me. Uh, I was 12 or 13 at the time, and it was Jack Kennedy. Um, Jack Kennedy is the archetype, the idealized model of what Americans look for, might seek, with all of his imperfections in a president. It was the last inaugural address, and presidents have months to prepare these addresses. In my judgment, it was the last inaugural address of real impact in the presidency. How could that be? That address was given in 1961. How could it be the final address in terms of how consequential it was? But Kennedy described himself as an idealist without illusion. Idealism without illusion. Never give up, never. 
on the possibility that the world, yourself, the circumstances around you can be changed. But as you go through the process of change, which is very painful, go through it with your eyes wide open. And nowhere is that more applicable than in the Middle East uh, in which the, our great republic is uh, unfortunately stuck. So I'm going to stop here. A few minutes early or late, I'm not sure, but I'll be more than happy to answer as many questions as I can. Thank you, Victor. Uh, Saudi Arabia. Is the Saudi-Israeli rapprochement or the Saudi Israeli thing, long-term alliance friendship, or do you think it's just an anti-Iranian? Uh, what's going on between Saudi and Israeli? Great question. People ask me um, what's new in the Middle East, uh, and I usually say two words, Saudi Arabia. It is rare, it is rare that you see the emergence of an individual. And let's be clear, this man is 32, 33 years old. Mohammed bin Salman, AKA MBS. He could rule the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for a half a century. Time is his ally, not his adversary, when it comes to trying to do what he claims he wants to do, which is to bring about nothing short of a transformation in many aspects of Saudi internal politics, the way they do business, their role in the world, their view of Islam. I might add, uh, Far away from Saudi Arabia, there's another young man who our president described as honorable. That would be Kim Jong-un, who is 34 years old. Another man who could rule North Korea for 50 years. I urge you to keep this in mind when you meet and greet those who argue that this summit, upcoming summit is nothing but a fraud and a charade. It might very well be, no promises. I've helped prepare uh, five presidential summits, four of which failed. Uh, and I'm certainly an expert in that. Uh, no guarantees. But when time is an ally for a leader, and the leader appears to, appears to be doing things that are out of character, it's worth taking a look at. The Saudis and the Israelis have come together basically for two reasons. The emergence of Iran, which are considered existential adversaries to both. On one hand, uh, what Israel and the Saudis would describe as, as uh, Shia, Shia malevolence, and then the emergence of the Islamic State and a range of Al-Qaeda derivatives that are pursuing um, terror uh, and, a, and a Sunni prescription. It's a con coincidence, confluence of interests that have come together and so far appear to be sustainable. There, are, there is a lot happening below the surface that we are not aware of. There was a report uh, yesterday that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu met um, the uh, ambassador from the UAE at a well-known restaurant in Washington. This was allegedly their second meeting. There have been reports that high-ranking Saudi officials have been to Israel. I do not doubt them. There are a web of contacts on the security side, without a doubt. And um, Mr. Kushner, the president's son-in-law, 
When I met him for the first time, I said to him, I wish my father-in-law had as much, much confidence in me as your father-in-law appears to have in you because he's given you Mission Impossible. But Mr. Kushner believes that he's cultivated MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, and that um, he may well be able to be a force for change and good if and when the administration puts out its peace plan. So um, I think it's a keeper, this relationship, based on circumstantial factors. The key question is how much can you how much of this relationship can be developed, particularly on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, which, without a more um, accommodationist perspective from both the current Israeli government and the Trump administration? And I, none of us know the answer to that. Are you surprised that the Israelis, especially Prime Minister Netanyahu, has not responded to Palestinian suggestions to start peace talks on uh, uh, the future of, on, on a two-state solution. Um, and do you think in this respect, if I may add, um, that the recognition by the U.S. of West Jerusalem as the, pres as the capital of Israel, what about East Jerusalem? Are we clear on that in the U.S.? What is the position of the U.S. on East Jerusalem? which is the understanding right. is that would be the capital of a Palestinian state. Right. Could you just repeat that? Yeah, one is um, why hasn't the Prime Minister of Israel responded positively or even initiated the possibility of direct contacts with Palestinians to negotiate a two-state solution? And then in the end, what, second question, what is the position of the Trump administration in East Jerusalem? Look, I've had the honor and privilege, sometimes uh, frustratingly so, of working with Mr. Arafat and Mr. Abbas, and working with a half dozen Israeli prime ministers. And I, I will say this about Mr. Mr. Netanyahu, who I've maintained contact with over the years. Self-image is extremely important in why people do things in life. You need an explanation for yourself consistent with that image, consistent with your politics, consistent with history and your place in history before you take a big decision. In my view, this is very simple. Benjamin Netanyahu was not put on this earth in his own mind to negotiate a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He was not put on this earth to even begin to flirt with the idea of fundamentally dividing Jerusalem. He was not put on this earth to facilitate the dismantling of Jewish settlements in the West Bank. He was certainly not put on this earth to dismantle and diminish Israel's presence, which is rapidly escalating, in the eastern part of Jerusalem. So in a way, it's a game, I think. It's a game that he plays. Now, I think, is it unfair to hold him to a higher standard? Well, no, it's not unfair. We have, a, we have our interests. There are American interests. There are Israeli interests. They can't possibly diverge, even though many people think they're somehow coincident across the board. Where you stand in life is where you sit, so a country like Israel cannot have the same interests sitting in the region it does with the United States sitting five, 6,000 miles away. So it strikes me, particularly now, when it appears to Mr. Netanyahu that everything he's wanted is coming true, that there really isn't much of an incentive to position himself to make these kinds of concessions. 
I think he, like others, particularly Mr. Sharon, views the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a 100-year problem. I don't think he has a solution. I think he knows he doesn't have a solution. And above all, he needs to maintain himself in power. Uh, he will soon become the longest governing, serving prime minister in the history of the state of Israel, exceeding even Israel's greatest prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. That's quite a run. And he's managed that because there's a dearth of political leadership. In fact, there's no one who has his security credentials, no one who appears to be, quote unquote, as prime ministerial as he. So uh, unless he's indicted, and by the way, it could happen any day next month in September on any number of the charges that the police have filed with the attorney general to now up to the attorney general to consider whether formal indictment of an Israeli prime minister is going to happen. And remember, it has happened. Prime Minister Olmert was indicted, convicted, and went to jail. Could happen to Mr. Netanyahu, too. So, uh, no, I see very little chance of Mr. Netanyahu initiating anything. As to, as to East Jerusalem, it's not just this administration. The reality is that um, even since, uh, since the late, late 80s, from Schultz on, with the possible exception of James Baker, for whom I worked in Bush 41, there has been an unwillingness on the part of the United States to deal with the Jerusalem issue in a way that's consistent and relevant with its past statements. Technically, formally, according to our policy, East Jerusalem is occupied territory. But the last president to even intimate that was Bush 41. And no president has, no president has pushed that point subsequently, and certainly not this one. And my own view on this is fairly simple. Should the United States open its embassy in West Jerusalem? Is West Jerusalem the capital of the state of Israel? Of course it is. Israel is probably one of the only countries in the world in which we defy the host government's willful choice of where we put our embassy. But it should, the embassy should be open in the context of a negotiated settlement or, or in the context of a statement, which would be easy for this administration to make simply says, during the course of negotiations leading to a two-state solution, the United States is prepared to open an embassy in East Jerusalem to represent American diplomatic interests in the capital of a Palestinian state. That would at least be a way of demonstrating that we recognize that Jerusalem is simply not one hand clapping. It's not, it's not a piece of real estate that is to be possessed by a single party. There are others who have claims, deep claims. History, unfortunately, teaches the opposite. History teaches Jerusalem is not to be shared, it's to be possessed in the name of one's God, one's tribe, and one's nation. And that, in essence, I suspect will continue to be the problem uh, or the challenge here. So the notion that this administration has taken Jerusalem somehow off the table by opening the embassy just makes no sense. It's not, on the it's not off the table at all. It's front and center on the table. Number one, with the events that you spoke to this week, why do you think that the decision to open the 
embassy tomorrow was decided upon, and number two, with the U.S. pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, I assume, I'm not certain of this, that other countries have entered into the Iran nuclear deal. I, I guess my question is, why is the pullout of the United States so um, such a big deal? And then, so why is Iran threatening such adverse actions if they're married into the agreement with other countries. Thank you for answering my question. Thank you, and they're two very good questions, and they're both, I think, somewhat related. I, I would argue to you that um, since I cannot divine one serious foreign policy consideration from, this, from the Jerusalem decision. I think this was driven in large part by three factors. Number one, and again, I'll repeat it again. Well, the fact that I need to say this is emblematic of something. I've worked for Republicans and Democrats. I voted for Republicans and Democrats. This is not a partisan comment. I think that the, the decision was motivated by three factors. Number one, Mr. Trump um, has delivered rightly or wrongly, on a set of campaign commitments and promises. This is something I think that is extremely important to him, but it is rooted in the political. That is number one. Number two, I think part of Mr. Trump's agenda is to be the un-Obama. Many administrations come to Washington and reject the policies of their predecessors, but there is a preternatural determination here to do this across the board. The Jerusalem decision is part of a broader piece. Withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, withdrawal from climate change, immigration bans, the, the Iran nuclear agreement, uh, maybe NAFTA, although I think that'll end up being negotiated. So there is this notion that this administration has to separate itself from its predecessor in ways that go beyond other administrations' determination to separate themselves. And finally, there is the reality that the permanent campaign for the next term begins probably even before the inauguration. And there is no question that much of what this administration does is designed and directed at the base, consolidating it, uh, and ensuring that at least the 30-plus percent is satisfied. And in the case of the Jerusalem issue, that includes the pro-Israeli community. And, and let's be clear, the, the American Jewish community, five and a half million, is a diverse lot. But on the Jerusalem issue, with some exceptions, it's kind of singing from the same tune. And the evangelical community, it'll be John Hagee, who heads Christians United for Israel, who will deliver the benediction, I believe, or the invocation tomorrow. And John Hagee has been cultivated by the Israelis, despite comments attributed to John Hagee, which are pretty bad when it comes to subjects like the Nazi Holocaust and what happens to Jews at the end of times. So I think, 
I think that that's in large part why the Jerusalem decision was taken. The rational approach would have been to use the Jim Baker approach. And I asked Mr. Kushner about this. If you, if you wanted to explain the administration's policies over the last year toward Israel, here's how you would do it. If, if you were really interested in solving the problem, you would say, okay, I'm going to apply so much honey to the Israelis during my first term that when it comes time to apply the vinegar, it will go down easier or there will be a cost if the Israelis reject my proposals because I have their back. I've demonstrated I have their back. I'm not sure that's what the calculation was about the embassy. But if this plan comes out and there is a section that basically says the United States recognizes East Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Palestine and is prepared to open an embassy, I'll be um, surprised. But it would be, the, it would be that, that kind of corrective I'm not sure that's going to happen. On the Iran deal, I, I, I think there is a relationship here as well to domestic politics. I was never a cheerleader for this agreement. It was designed by the previous administration to preempt an Israeli strike against Iran's nuclear facilities and to make an American strike unnecessary. Uh, it was not a transformational agreement. It was not meant to change the nature of the U.S.-Iranian relationship. It was highly flawed, but in my judgment, it's still functional. And we don't have anything to replace it. Uh, what the Europeans will do, I don't know. They'll try to keep the Iranians in it, uh, and maybe for a while they will succeed. But if American sanctions, which are going to be reapplied and which will bite against European companies, are as expansive as the Treasury Department envisions, I think it's only a matter of time that the Iranians also walk from the agreement. And then you open up a set of challenges that you could be manageable but may not. I don't understand the logic of the accord, uh, just as I do not understand, other, other than from a domestic political perspective, why tomorrow we're opening, we're, we're opening a U.S. embassy uh, in Jerusalem. Carl? Um, Microphone. All these other very important issues, but, uh, but Aaron, um, how do you think, what's your view of how the United States is interacting with the Russian government to sort of manage the, effectively the level of violence that's, that's occurring in the region? And do you think that we and the Russians are savvy enough to keep this lead from blowing off? Yeah, it's a very good question, Carl, and it's great to see you, by the way. I, um, I think Mr. Putin has a set of interests which Mr. Trump is prepared to accept and acknowledge, at least in Syria. As long as we don't threaten, through direct military force, uh, the Assad regime, which Mr. Putin has invested heavily in, in trying to secure when they intervened in 2015, I think there's a reasonable chance that this can be managed. But as you know, the recent escalation between Israel and Iran has introduced a new level of unpredictability into this equation. I don't think anyone, including the Israelis or the Iranians or the Russians, want a major confrontation, which is why I don't think we're going to have one, at least, uh, at least for now. 
But Mr. Putin is determined to make sure that we don't dispatch another Russian client in the way we dispatched Saddam Hussein in Iraq and the way we made it possible for the Libyans to uh, eliminate Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, and if you think about the Syrian battle space, it's a wonder with the Turks, the Iranians, the Israelis, the Russians, that we haven't had a major incident between the US and, uh, and Russia. We have good lines of communication, a deconfliction channel, uh, at least a regional hotline to pre prevent and preempt such things. So I think there's a pretty good chance we'll avoid a, a direct US-Russian um, conflict. Every, everyone. We're going to have to end, I'm afraid. Everyone, please join me in thanking.